the Legal Toolkit with Jared Correa. With guest, Marisa Portuondo, we play shit Miami and say, and then, forget the MCU, Jared sells us on the Hanna-Barbera universe. Iron Man? Huh, Magilla Gorilla's where it's at. But first, your host, Jared Correa. It's time for the Legal Toolkit Podcast. Remain seated with your hands, arms, feet, and legs inside the vehicle. And yes, it's still called the Legal Toolkit Podcast, even though I don't own a Ryoba saw, and I don't think I'll be getting one for Christmas. I'm your host, Jerry Korea. You're stuck with me because Don Adams was unavailable. He was just too busy kicking ass as Inspector Gadget and Tennessee Tuxedo. If you've never seen Tennessee Tuxedo, do yourself a favor, check it out. I'm the CEO of Red Cave Law Firm Consulting, a business management consulting service for attorneys and bar associations. Find us online at redcavelegal.com. I'm the COO of Gideon Software, Inc. We build chatbots so law firms can convert more leads and conversational document assembly tools so law firms can build documents faster and more accurately. You can find out more about Gideon at gideonlegal.com. Now, before we get to our interview today with Marisa Portuondo from Streamlined Legal, let's talk about data integration. Yes, that's right. Excitement abounds. One of the main reasons that law firms don't move off of legacy software is because they fear the data migration. Fear the deer, nay, fear the data. So when I say legacy software, I mean software that the law firm has used for an extended period of time. Inevitably, that software contains lots and lots of information sets, contacts, documents, etc. Most of the time, that software is desktop software, meaning that it's not in the cloud, and that makes data transfer inherently more difficult. That's because the data is in a closed system that wasn't necessarily designed for bulk upload or download of data sets into or out of other applications. Couple that with the fact that desktop software vendors have become sort of marginalized, with the rise of cloud tools, and those purveyors are not necessarily motivated to let you part with your data easily. They'll make it difficult or impossible for you to do so, including by charging exorbitant fees to access your data for transfer. Now, assuming that you can even effectively get at your data, or maybe you're using a cloud software provider already, kudos to you, and you're just switching to another one, you've still got choices to make. Especially if you've got a lot of data, say decades of data, Do you need to transfer it all? And this is not like some crazy hypothetical. Like I talk to law firms about this stuff all the time. 10, 20, 30 years of data. What do you do with it? So one choice would be to bring it all into the new system. But that option also carries with it some additional challenges. First, not all that data is likely to port over easily. Fields within programs are not guaranteed to match each other. And if they're off by just one character, that can make the field mapping and data transfer more difficult. But even if you can overcome that issue and theoretically transfer all of that data, it may still be prudent to leave some of that behind. Why? Consider first that there are rules about file retention in your local jurisdiction. In many states, law firms can confidentially destroy client file data, including trust account data, which may have a different retention period than client files. Roughly like six to seven years after the close of the representation. Here's my disclaimer. Look at your local rules first. So while you have every right to be an actual or digital pack rat in this case, you don't have to be. 
you can get rid of information as an attorney. Most attorneys just don't. Thus, if you're one of these law firms staring down the barrel of a 30-year data transfer, you may be just shaved two-thirds of your potential data transfer obligation, which is pretty good. The next item to think about is whether you even need all of that remaining data, like that last six to seven year set. If you're archiving emails, do you really need to know the historical value of all your Kohl's cash that you've earned over the years? You can probably get rid of those. And you're probably not going to archive that kind of junk email in the first place. But there are other messages that you may not need to transfer. Similar items may include scheduling emails, administrative emails, conversations with staff, that kind of thing. Where are you going to buy Trudy's birthday cake from? God forbid, we don't know, 26 years later. Beyond that, it might be a fool's errand to transfer every calendar event, every task. This is becoming more manageable now when you think about it in this way, right? Now, in theory, there's a world in which you don't transfer over anything at all. If you consider your old software to be your legacy system, you can leave all your old data in there. Then, you just need to pick a date certain when you're going to launch your new software and start adding new cases into that system at that point. Eventually, the old program will age out so that you're only working on cases in the new software. You could extend this principle a bit further as well, such that each time you need to work on an existing case, you just add it to your new system. That ad hoc approach will help the aging out process along, and it'll happen a bit more swiftly. And this approach works particularly well when your legacy software is a desktop program that you don't have to pay an annual or monthly subscription for, but which you already own and won't need to update aggressively. Just let it sit there, something you've already paid for, like your old car sitting in your driveway. Now, admittedly, that's not a perfect solution either. It's honestly kind of a pain in the ass because you have to monitor two systems simultaneously for a period of time. But the truth of the matter is that anyway you slice it, this sucks balls. Whatever you try to accomplish here all of, part of a data transition, none of a data transition. You try to avoid it altogether. There's no winning. There's always some kind of trade-off that you're going to make. So I guess if there's like a silver lining here, if there's some good news, it's that you don't have to do it all by yourself. One of the best ways to avoid tasks, let me tell you, is to farm them out. And if you're a lawyer, that's the better solution, as I've talked about in the past on this show, since you will almost always charge more for your time than your vendors will charge for theirs. So if you're in the business of trading hours, trade out of anything that is not substantive legal work. This all begs the question, who, who I ask, can help you to manage a data transition? Well, there are at least a few options. Pretty much every software company that you're making the transition to will help you move your data over, usually for free. However, even though most of those companies have theoretically mapped out the data transition process from their various competitors, that's not always a smooth process. And they'll usually only just do it once. So it'll be your job once they do it to ensure that everything has been done correctly before they wash their hands the whole process. And if you say an error later, tough shit, cowboy. I suppose you could alternatively have a staff person do this for you, perform that operation, but they're likely not skilled in the process. And the third option, which is maybe the most palatable, is hiring an implementation consultant to oversee the data transition and the setup of your new system. Now, as luck would have it, I know it probably seems like we don't plan these things out at all, and that's probably true 95% of the time, but this is different. We have an implementation consultant to talk to you today. Speaking of data integrity, let's now hear from my guy, Joshua Lennon, who's got you for this week's edition of the Clio Legal Trends Report Minute. 
Here's a fact about lawyers who switched jobs in the last 12 months. 37% of them move firms in pursuit of better work-life balance. I'm Joshua Lennon, lawyer and resident at Clio, and this is just one finding from our recent Legal Trends Report. Given the irregular schedules and long hours that lawyers often dedicate to their clients, it's no surprise that many are willing to leave in pursuit of a more manageable work life. The unfortunate result is that staff turnover can be incredibly disruptive for both your firm and your clients. For more information on what law firms can do to keep good people, download Clio's Legal Trends Report for free at clio.com forward slash trends. That's Clio spelled C-L-I-O dot com forward slash trends. Okay, let's get to the meat in the middle of this legal sandwich. Today's meat is bologna, which you should only consume fried. That's my advice to you. It's time to interview our guest. My guest today, whose name I am going to try not to butcher, is Marisa Portuondo of Streamlined Legal and, just to fuck with me, Portuondo Law Firm. How was that? Was that terrible or was I okay? No, you did We did did it twice. All right, good, good, good. (laughs) Thank you for coming on. It's good to have you in the studio, in the virtual studio. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. All right. So I wanted to talk to you about a bunch of things today, but as we were just talking before we started recording here, like we're in a Zoom meeting right now with several recovering lawyers. You started a law practice, you were practicing law exclusively, and now you've started to do some other stuff in legal technology. So can you talk to me about what you were doing, what you're doing now, and how you made the decision to kind of move away a little bit from traditional legal practice? Yeah, so um, I had my firm for over a decade, and we focused on business and construction. Lots of litigation, lots of dispute resolving, but also just kind of helping business owners get their, you know what, together. Um, Yes, yes. And, (laughs) you know, it turned out that was what I really enjoyed doing the most. So it was kind of a natural I guess I started leaning in that direction with my clients. I was giving them lots of, you know, advice oh, and lots of yeah. procedure and systems and operations type advice. That was my my background prior to law school. So I kind of got it old habits die hard, I guess. So, yeah, I've never heard anybody be like, hey, I was working with this construction firm and it went perfectly well. Right. And yeah. that's why you were able to stay in business for a while. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Especially, especially in Miami. So, yeah, you know, lots of. You know, contractors aren't exactly the most organized people, right? They like yes. run their office out of their pickup trucks and, you know. <laughs> and now, what did you do before law school? Because it sounds like you had some experience like in a business field prior to being a, becoming a lawyer. Yes. So I had no intention of becoming a lawyer. So I actually went out and got my <laughs> my master's in MIS, which is a, a management information systems. And I got hired by a a local pharmaceutical company that um, was based in Miami, but they were international. They hired me to help with an ERP implementation, like worldwide. So I did that with them. And then they asked me to stick around after the project. And somehow I got thrown into like the materials management world of supply chain. And oh, wow. Yeah, it was just a completely weird ride. Lots of fun doing crazy stuff, managing like a crazy amount of... uh, pharmaceutical inventory. Wow. That was not what I expected. So like, it's kind of interesting (laughs) that you moved from like information technology into legal. Why did you do that? Like, why were you like, you know what I want to do next? 
go to fucking law school. Why did you decide to do that? It's actually a pretty funny story. So, you know, the tech bubble kind of burst and Mm -hmm. the field was incredibly saturated. It was actually becoming harder to find a job uh, in in what I wanted to do. And I was in New Orleans (laughs) drinking. and I was at a bar with, a, with you know, a group of friends and one of them happened to be an attorney. And I was saying like, yeah, I don't know what my next step is. I don't know. This is what I want to be doing for the rest of my life. And he started talking about being a lawyer. And it had always kind of been in the back of my mind, but I didn't think I'd actually do it. And he said, just take the LSAT. Like, just take the LSAT and see how you do. You might even get a scholarship out of it. And <laughs> based on some drunken advice, I ended up uh, doing just that. And, you know, the rest is history. I was gonna. I was gonna say. Do you have to be drunk to convince yourself that you like being a lawyer? Like you hit that guy at this one moment where he's like, "Yeah, this is great." <laughs> Pretty much. Come be a lawyer the with first, me. That should have been the first red flag, right? <laughs> this guy told me to be a lawyer, but he was hammered. So I was like, "Fuck it, why not?" Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So super interesting background, which is a background that most lawyers have. Most lawyers are not technical in any way. They don't understand data. So you have the law firm thing, and now you're starting to do software implementations. And I got to tell you, like, so I do a little bit of consulting, mostly strategic stuff, because I like to be like, hey, you should do this, and then slowly back away. But the software implementation stuff, I don't touch, because I think it's really hard to do. So why did you decide to go in that direction? And what do you like about it? I think that systems background, I I, I don't think I ever realized how much I was into systems when I was studying it. It wasn't until... (laughs) You know, I had my own business and that's kind of where I would like geek out all the time. I'd stay up late, you know, working on my my processes and and configuring my stuff. I never wanted to like write motions or do any of that stuff. I just wanted to like work on that stuff. And um, when COVID happened, I really got deep into that with Lawmatics, actually. I built out like my own Lawmatics for my firm and stuff. Yeah, Lawmatics CRM software for law firms. Really good one, in fact. Yeah. Yeah. And you can go way down the rabbit hole in Lawmatics, which I did. Yes. And that was kind of yes. illuminating for me. Like that's where I w- kept, I kept going back to that work at my firm. And I kept going back to that kind of advice with my clients as far as like how they were doing things instead of, you know, so much of the legal stuff. And so when the opportunity came to to jump ship, I took a chance and I figured worst case scenario, I could always go back to, you know, my law firm. It would always be yeah, there waiting for of me. of course. <laughs> exactly. That's pretty cool. I love when lawyers like do different things and I'm, I'm of the same ilk. I like the business management stuff way better than the law practice. Yeah, it's way All more right. fun. Can we get a little bit broad here? So like sure. talked about Lawmatics, which is a CRM. A lot of law firms have been adopting CRMs lately, which is a good thing because they need to manage the intake more effectively. So in your view, like what are the technology tools that are really important for what you would describe as like a modern law firm? So like a not an 2000, a 2000 <laughs> law firm, because modern yeah. law firms are still are still outdated. Um, <laughs> you can talk about modern law firms currently, such as they are. You can talk about the law firm of the future. What should people be looking at? I mean, I think definitely scheduling tool is huge, right? So if like the yes. software you're using doesn't have a scheduling tool built into it, then I definitely recommend one. We love Calendly. I think it's yeah. really clean and easy to use yes. for you know both the host and the invitee. It's pretty, which I always like nice, pretty user interfaces. 
I, I just think it's, yeah. it's so, such a time suck um, scheduling things between that's especially awful. different yeah. law firms. So I think mm-hmm. that's a, a non-negotiable, I would say. And a lot of lawyers resist it for some reason. They don't trust the technology. I don't feel like they want to have control over their schedules. They're old school. Exactly. Like you said before, I, like modern law firm, does it even exist? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. And I was the same way, by the way. I thought Calendly, I was like, no way. I'm not giving up my calendar to you know random people. But it's not like that at all. Once you start using it, you realize you do have power over everything. Right. So I would say scheduling tool for sure. CRM. Yes. Again, non-negotiable. I would you know, agree. lawyers spend so much money on marketing and then they just drop the ball when, <laughs> when the lead PNC. comes in. What happens to the lead? I don't know. Exactly. It's like, like I'm going to spend all this time and money on networking and marketing and then yeah, I won't you might call as well them flush back. that down the toilet. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's a good list so far. Keep going. CRM for sure. Obviously practice management software for sure because you got to keep track of what you're doing and what your people are doing. Yes. I'm big on, I hate it, but I'm big on time tracking if you're going to. Oh, all right. That's kind of a salty take for everything. Like for yeah. utilization rate, efficiency purposes, as yeah, well as I mean, for billing. If yeah. you're going to find out how profitable you are, you really need to know how much money, you're, uh, how much time, I mean, you're spending on things, at least at the beginning. Yeah. Like once you get an average, then you, you know, you have an idea of how much time it takes you to do certain things and maybe you can loosen up a little bit. Yeah, but right. yeah, you definitely need to figure out how much time you're spending on things and, and doc automation. Yes. That would be. Document automation feels to me like probably the easiest efficiency play for most law firms because they're so heavy in documents. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good list. I like that list. I'm on board. <laughs> so let's extend that a little bit. You talked about this, like process management, like contractors working out of their trucks, lawyers working out of their office in WordPerfect. People get intimidated by process, I think, though, because it's like, let's create a system. And people are like, whoa, 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 I have to build a system? Wait a second. How do you get people over the hump of like, build a system, trust me, it'll be helpful. And then how do you actually help them to build that? Or do you? Or are you like, you're on your own? (laughs) No, we definitely help them. Um, (laughs) It's hard. Let me tell you, um, like some lawyers, I'm sure this is not a shock to anyone who knows lawyers, but some of them are are very open-minded and very just ready to do, you know, something different. And then you have the complete opposite of that spectrum which is uh, what do you mean i have to do stuff like i thought i could just pay you and all my problems would go away right lawyers love to do that can i throw cash at this problem instead of actually thinking about it yeah exactly and so the funny part is you already have a system it doesn't matter if it's not written down right like Mm. you always have a process it may just be in your head and i think they, they get overwhelmed when we start pulling the system out of their head and they start realizing how many holes it has or, or how much work they're doing on their own yes. when they don't, you know, delegate and things like that. And then obviously the change aspect is never easy. Yeah. So, so you, so you got to backfill and help them to fill in the holes. And then yes. at that point, they have a functional system that they can work with. Yes. If they actually work with it. Right. Which is another hurdle in and of itself. Well, let's talk about that. Like the change management piece is a thing too, right? Change mm-hmm. management sucks. No one wants to do it. It's bad. So how do you get people over the hump of change management? Something that's been successful for us, like we we talk a lot to the owner about communicating with their team. I think that a lot of owners make the mistake of, yeah, we hired you, but then they kind of forget the minor detail of letting their people know that we're coming in and that, 
you know, things are going to change and we're not here to like get them fired and we're not here to make their lives more difficult. We're here to, you know, help them out. And the owner's excited about it and he wants everyone to be on board. Like sometimes that just doesn't get communicated. And so you get a lot of crazy to me. Yeah, it is crazy. You'd be amazed at how many people just like we'll have staff come on and they're like, I don't know why I'm here. Wow, that, that's so interesting. That feels like a typical lawyer move in some ways, though, because <laughs> they're so bad at communicating. And so then you're kind of stuck because you're like, hey, these 20 people that we have to be working with, like, and they're like, who are you again? So you have to go through the process of getting buy-in all over again, it sounds like. Yeah, sometimes we do. And it's funny because all our calls are on Zoom. So, you know, we can see people and it's I've gotten yeah. pretty good at reading, like, who's in and who's just like, this is total BS. I can't believe I'm sitting through this. Like, why is this happening? I'm glad you brought this up. This is a great question, too, that I that I see all the time, which is that, like, in any law firm, let's say there's 20 people in a law firm, like, some people just aren't going to buy in. And so mm-hmm. what do you do at that point? You're like, oh, Tina, who's our 80-year-old secretary, doesn't want to do the new system, so we'll just wait for her to die. Or do you actually do, like, hey, let's try to get everybody on board? Is that possible? Like, what if there are laggards? I've literally had people say, like, oh, this person's going to retire in three years. So I'm not worried about it. And I'm like, that's a long time. Like three years is a long time to have one person not following the rules, essentially. Right. No, we absolutely try to get everyone on board. I think a lot of it is fear based. Right. Like no one likes change. I think there's sometimes an ego component, especially if they're the ones that created the old system. Right. It's an attack on, you know, their their logic or. Or that they might be on the chopping block, kind of, right? Because the right. whole system doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and I think back in like maybe the 90s and stuff, you remember like consultants basically meant people were getting fired. I fucking love the 90s. Like, can we talk more <laughs> about the 90s? I love the 90s too. Yes. <laughs> that was where I peaked probably. <laughs> oh, me too. 93. That's probably where our country I was rolling. <laughs> yes. Yes. The 90s. What a time. All right. So you try to get everybody on board. We do. Um, sure. Sometimes people are dragging their feet. Now, do you have techniques that you use to get people bought in? Or is it more like, tell me or show me? Like, do you have to show them a system works before they get bought in sometimes? Yeah, uh, for sure. There's always like the skeptic, right? That doesn't think it's going to work. And so you have to show right. it to them. Then the other personality is the the not tech savvy person that thinks it's going to be too hard to figure out. So I'll I'll kind of right. hold their hand a little bit mm-hmm. more and maybe do some like laser training with those people. I'm very patient with those people, you know, to try to make sure that, especially if they're the ones that are going to be like running the system, right? Like sometimes yeah, you'll have a much older have person know. running the intake system because they've got a great personality and they have all the you know soft skills needed to do intake, but then they're just not the most tech savvy people. Well, I'm going to sit with yeah. that person and make sure that they know how to, you know, click the buttons and all that stuff. And if you're patient enough, most people will, will get it, right? And once they see it's helping their job, then then they're on board. So that was great on the people component. Um, one more thing I want to talk about in relation to this is, and I think this is one of the reasons why a lot of law firms stick with software that doesn't really work is the data migration part of it. Like that's the nightmare feature, right? Because you probably get law firms who are like, okay, I got 25 years of data. I got to move it all over before I do anything. And then you don't end up doing anything. So how, how do you deal with that part of it? We we will help people import their information in. I think where it can get tricky is is how much of a mess was that data, right? Like, is it even worth it sometimes to import it in? Because yes, if it was a if it was a dumpster fire, like, do I really want it in my nice, clean, shiny new software? 
So that's something we have to analyze with them. Is it even worth it? Number one. Number two, there's no such thing as like every little part is going to make it over, right? That's just not the way these mm. imports work. So yes. that's always something that, you know, they have to kind of come to grips with. And but, it's unstructured um, data, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. You're going to say something else, though. Well, I was going to say, and a lot of people we work with aren't necessarily using the system for the first time, right? So a lot of times, like, they've been using the software for a long time, and we're coming in and making it better. And that's a whole other ball of wax, because now we have to clean up the system, right, that they've been using. Right. So that's another component of it. But yeah, I mean, we help them through it as much as we can. Sometimes they'll sometimes they'll try to do it with the software company instead. Right. And then right. we have to come in and kind of clean that <laughs> clean that up sometimes. yeah that, that's usually how it works i yeah. i have seen that happen a ton yeah as well how do you get people to drop the data though let's say for example you're like hey some of this data you don't necessarily have to keep after the retention period and some of this data is not worth keeping how do you convince people to do that because attorneys in my experience are like pack rats they like to hang on to everything forever oh yeah we had a client that had, a, had an entire office of just file cabinets so not even not even digital data, right? <laughs> and she was paying for this storage to store all these documents. And I'm like, it's 2022, you know, like, what are you doing? Um, so yeah, absolutely. The digital storage that you're not even paying for, right, is, is even easier to be a pack rat about, I guess. But I think once they realize it's not really, I mean, do you really want to pay someone for the next two years to like manually input all this information? Because you can't get it all over. Right. You can't yeah. it, it won't come all over like typically your notes or your tasks or your calendar entries may not all make it over. So when they start seeing that it's going to come in piecemeal anyway, I think they realize like, yeah. And what's your stance on the paper stuff? Because I've seen that, too. I once had a firm that I was working with. This guy bought like a storefront, like an old convenience store just to store his documents. So he had this like store in the middle of town and it was like wall to wall paper files. Do you tell people, hey, just like. Let's not worry about the paper files. Or you get people who are like, hey, I want to scan everything. I know what I'll do. I'll hire a college student who'll scan everything for me, and then I'll be good to go. Yeah. Well, I actually did that. Did you? <laughs> I did. I did. Well, because it was, there was stuff that I had that was not digital, and I was still within right. you know the time where I was supposed to have those records. But I am anti-paper, for sure. I went paperless so long ago when people thought it was insane for a law firm to be yes. paperless. Yes. But- we definitely get them off paper or do whatever we can to get them off paper. The main reason being like, everything's got to be in the system, right? If you get hit by a bus tomorrow, how are we going to find yeah. your papers? You know? Yes. So it's not just a matter of you're being ridiculous. It's a matter of you're hurting the firm if something happens to you, right? Or you just, let's say you win the lottery. It doesn't even have to be anything bad and you're out of here. Yeah. You know, yeah. now you have all this stuff stored in a million different places and it's just not good for anyone, so... Digitize, make your life easier, everyone. All right, there's one more thing I want to ask you. I was Googling around and I saw that you did a podcast about like an RV and driving around and stuff. Are you yeah. restoring an RV currently? Did you already do it? Like sobby of yours? I know this is like a big pandemic thing for people. Uh, yeah, we, we, we were pre-pandemic. We were uh, ahead, wow. of the, ahead of the trend. Um, yeah. Yeah, we got a, an old 1992 34-foot RV back in, uh, oh God, wow. I just found out. I was pregnant that's with a, our That's son. a boat. Oh, it's a huge, it's, it's, a, it's a condo on wheels. <laughs> so it would have been uh, 2015 when we got it. And 
Oh man, it looked like a meth lab on wheels. It was um, <laughs> like the Breaking Bad Winnebago. Yeah, yeah, like the paint was peeling because the guy had like taken a pressure washer to it and just destroyed the paint job. How's it looking now? You got like a hot tub in there or what? <laughs> nah, nah. Um, it looks good. My husband did the exterior and little by little we did, actually we did the interior first. So it still looked like a traveling meth lab, even though it was really nice inside, <laughs> which was kind of nice because no one bothered us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like that. Look at that crappy RV. But inside. But inside like it was Shangri-La. really nice. Yeah, people were like, stay away from those people. They're, they're they're scary looking. But then after a while, I was like, I'm tired of being the scary looking RV everywhere we go. Yeah. So we fixed it up. It was awesome. We like yanked out the rug, put in floors, painted. Like all we did it all together and it was a lot of fun. That's cool. All right, now people yeah. are going to be asking you for pictures of the RV, just so you know. Hey, um, yeah, they might, they might. This was fun. Will, will you hang around for our last segment here? Absolutely. So everybody will take one final sponsor break so you can hear more about what our sponsors can do for your law practice. Then stay tuned. That's right. It's the rump roast. It's even more supple than the roast beast. What you may not know is the way that your law firm bills clients may directly impact whether they hire you in the first place. It's true. That's why I've got Joshua Lennon from Clio. He's a lawyer in residence over there to talk to me about this subject. Joshua, go ahead, expound. Yeah, 70% of clients are telling us they want to pay via payment plans. And while hourly rates are the most common fee structure offered by law firms, clients are telling us 67% that they want the option to pay for legal services via flat fees. Wow, so what should lawyers do? Well, only 37% of law firms actually offer flat fees on any legal matter. So if you want to stand out, start offering flat fees. Thanks, Joshua. To learn more about the billing preferences of today's legal clients, download Clio's Legal Trends Report for free at clio.com slash trends. That's Clio, spelled C-L-I-O, dot com slash trends. Contract automation isn't a trend. It's a strategic imperative. Though big players in the e-sign world will make you believe implementing it will cost you big bucks and more than a few headaches, it doesn't have to be that way. DocuB is an easy-to-onboard, full suite of products that includes e-signature, brilliant workflow capabilities, and AI contract automation at nearly half the price of those out-of-touch behemoths. The one thing DocuB doesn't automate? Their customer service. Visit get.docub.com slash contracts to set up a call with a real live person. DocuB will be with you every step of the way. Partner with Rankings.io, the marketing agency for law firms that want results, not excuses. With flat rates for Google ads, a track record ranking attorneys for the most competitive terms on Google, and a team always easy to reach by phone, even during off hours, Rankings.io is the agency of choice for firms that want the rankings, traffic, and cases other law firm marketing agencies just can't deliver. Visit Rankings.io for a free consultation and start seeing your firm grow. Welcome back, everybody. That's right, we're at the rear end of the legal toolkit. I like to call it the rump roast. It's a grab bag of short form topics, all of my choosing. Why do I get to pick? Because I'm the host. Marisa, thanks for coming back. Hopefully you don't regret it. (laughs) No, it's been fun. You're a Miami girl. And 
I would like to explore the culture of Miami with you. We want to do a little segment called Shit Miami and Say. So this will give me another opportunity to embarrass myself as I try to pronounce (laughs) Spanish words. And Evan is always looking for that. So first of all, do I have it right? Is someone who lives in Miami a Miamian? Oh, God, you know, I don't even know. I've never referred to myself as a Miamian. Yeah. What do you Um, refer to your, do you say I'm from Miami or is there like some other shorthand? Okay. Okay. Yeah. You know more about Miami than most people. I know. I don't know a lot of people from Miami for whatever reason. So I got some Miami phrases online and we'll see if they're legit. You can tell me, is this stuff that people say in Miami and do I have it right? Okay. Number one, can you tell me what chanclitos are? Am I saying that right? Chancletas? Is that a thing? Yes. Yes. That was much better. <laughs> so <laughs> I never Chan- heard this word until this morning. <laughs> Chancletas. Okay, so the, the, the primary language in Miami is Spanglish, right? So Yes. Yes. <laughs> Chancletas are flip flops or like house slippers, but usually oh. flip flops. That you I know like, are basically I like house slippers. I'm very house into slippers. house slippers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um so that's Pretty much the like standard footwear in Miami, right? It's like you, you, we don't wear closed-toed shoes really, right? Unless we're like playing sports because it's always so hot. All right, so flip-flops are the way to go everywhere. Flip-flops for sure. And the house slippers thing, I didn't even know. That's great. Yeah, like moms like hit their kids with chancletas. It's like like a a tool of discipline in Hispanic culture. This is like a Portuguese thing too. So I'm Portuguese and... The Portuguese moms used to beat their children with wooden spoons. Yeah, it's like an Italian the, thing too, huh? Yeah, yeah. I remember like when the kid that was next door to me would come running out of the house, and his mom would be like hitting him with a wooden spoon. And I was <laughs> like, oh, he was probably like, if it could only have been a flip flop, my life would have been so much easier. <laughs> yeah, I think I'd take the flip flop over the spoon. <laughs> All right, so this is going to be good. So I'm going to say something. You're going to correct me. Tell me how to pronounce it. This is great. Okay, next one. Am I saying this right? Dale? Dale. Okay. Oh, that was, that's so good. That's so good. <laughs> this seems to, my understanding of this is that this is like aloha, right? Like a, like a greeting or something that could be expressed in a lot of different ways. No. All right. Correct me. You're making a face. People can't see it, but you're making a face. <laughs> I was thinking, that was my thinking face. It definitely can be used in a, in a lot of different ways. It's one of those words, right? That just can be used in so many different situations. Um, how would you say it, like, if you came up to somebody on, a, on the street, like, would you say that to them as a greeting? No. Or is it more, okay, okay. So no, something that it's happens like, in conversation. Uh, well, first of all, if someone's like, all right, I got to go. It's, it's been good talking to you. You could be like, dale. Dale's like, all right, see, you, like, see oh, you later. So it's like, right? see you later. Okay, okay. So dale, yeah. But it could also be like, dale, like you're, you're, dig, you're digging on what they're saying. <laughs> um, it's kind of in the intonation, you know, um, it really, that's awesome. yeah, it really depends on, on, yeah, it's kind of like the F word, right? Like you could just use it so oh, many different ways. Yeah. I like, all right, I'm gonna try and work this into my speech patterns. You have to tell me how I'm doing. I okay. got three more for you. This is, okay. this is fun. Okay. Getty, Getty. Am I saying that right? Getty? Yeah. Yeah. G-E-T-T-Y. Like a get Yeah. Yeah, I've never heard this before. So, yeah. Um, a small party a, at somebody's house, but not yeah. a house party, right? Yeah, we're having a Getty, you know, so-and-so's house. That, that That's a little younger than my generation. That's not necessarily a Gen oh. X 
term, oh, but I'm familiar a, with it. More of a millennial thing? More of a millennial, yeah, for but sure. But you're cool enough to know what it is, so I, that's good. I, I mean, I don't know about that, but yes, I do know what it is. <laughs> Definitely not as cool as I was in the 90s, as we were saying. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think we've just, the 90s were the best time to be alive. Sorry, it kids. definitely were. I would be so lost in Miami, I wouldn't even know what to say. All right, I got two more for you. Now, I've also heard that when people say that they're getting out of a car in Miami, they say, get down, which is not like partying. That's just like literally opening the door and leaving your car. This one I don't get. Yeah. That's like a thing. I literally had this conversation with someone the other day because, (laughs) again, people who speak Spanish in Miami, especially, I don't want to speak for anywhere else, but they say, yeah, "Yeah, um, he got down from the car. And the reason is because it's a direct translation from Spanish. In Spanish, we say, bajarse del carro, which means get down from the car. So even though it makes no sense in English, it's like a literal translation from the Spanish way of saying to get out of a car. Um, so you that will definitely so hear it in Miami. No one thinks twice about it. But if you travel, people look at you like, what is oh, going on? If somebody said that, I would be like, what? I, w- I would definitely do a double take. Yeah. That so is, someone said uh, it the other day and, and uh, you know, was, we were a bunch of r- around a bunch of non-Spanish speakers and I, it ended up into a whole conversation about it. Yeah. I'm envious of your Spanish. Your Spanish is so good. My Spanish no, is terrible. Like I could listen to you do Spanish all day. All right. We'll, we'll have um, to practice. Yes. Yes. I, I could use the practice. All right. I got, I got one more for you all and right. I'm probably going to screw this up, but I thought this one was cool. Pata Susia. Is that right? <laughs> oh, you're laughing. Good. So you know what this is probably. Yes. <laughs> is this like a millennial thing or is this no. like, okay. Okay. All right. All right. So uh, what is pata that? Pata Susia. Uh-huh. <laughs> A pata sucia is usually a woman or a girl um, walking around barefoot, which is yes. the cardinal sin in a Hispanic mother's opinion. Um, <laughs> so, so you got is this inside the house? Is that why you have the house? Any, slippers? like or my mom anywhere? freaks out because we are a no shoe house, and she really? thinks. Right, and it's cleaner to be a no-shoe house, and she thinks it's horrifying. Who's who's not a no-shoe house? Really, I was not aware that this was a thing. I thought everybody took their shoes off. My mom thinks it's horrifying that I walk around barefoot on my house in my house. Like, really? She's like, "Can't you get some chancletas?" And you know, so (laughs) (laughs) I like how you brought it back there. That was nice. Come full circle. You like that? So, Um, So your mom is like rolling off the street, shoes on, in the house. Really. Wow. I know. It's creepy, wow. right? Yeah. So, so pata is sucia wild. is definitely not a compliment. We'll start with that. Um, <laughs> it typically gets thrown around when, when women take their high heels off at a party or a club yes. because their feet hurt and they start oh, dancing really barefoot. Yeah. And it's like a very like, oh my God, look at that pata sucia. I cannot believe she's barefoot <laughs> at the wedding. And it's like a really insulting thing to call someone. It literally means wow. dirty paw. Like, oh my God. Like, you have dirty paws. Like, you're not even a human at that point. Your pata is a, a paw, and susia means dirty. Everyone in Miami, keep your shoes on, please. Please. Yeah, exactly. This is great. I learned a lot. And <laughs> you really know your shit when it comes to Miami. I'm super impressed. Yeah, I mean, I lived there my whole life, so I hope I hope so. <laughs> Do you know there's a whole YouTube segment called Shit Miami Girls Say? 
And really? it's hilarious. Yes. It's right, hilarious. Right, and there's a part one out. and a part two. You got to find it on YouTube. It's, you will thoroughly enjoy it if you enjoyed watch, this segment. Watch both parts. Okay. Thank you. This was a lot Thank of fun. You. We'll have to have you back on again sometime. Absolutely. It was my, my pleasure. All right. Take it easy. <laughs> you too. If you want to find out more about Marisa Portuondo and Streamlined Legal, oh, and Portuondo Law Firm. Yeah, I have to pronounce that twice. Not fair. Visit streamlined.legal. Now, for those of you listening in Lone Cabbage, Florida, why can't those motherfuckers get a second cabbage? I've got a great Spotify playlist for you. Yes, that's right. We're doing Miami songs. It's time. I've run out of time, unfortunately. So we won't be able to dig into any more of the Hanna-Barbera universe. Perhaps there's a future monologue topic in there somewhere. I don't know. Now, this is Jared Korea reminding you that people don't like your pet as much as you think they do. Sorry, Fifi. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.